We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. It has been said that one doesn't know they're creating history when they're in the midst of doing it. Today we'll be talking with a Marine whose job was to do precisely that. Joe Winslow spent 21 years in the Marine Corps. Some of that time he served as a historical officer with the Marine Corps History Division. He now memorializes history and art as the owner of the AAA Gift Company. His work appears in the White House and the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., among other locations. Joe, welcome to American Warrior Radio. Thank you very much, Ben. Joe, I did not even know there was such a thing as a historical officer. I'm getting ahead of myself. What first led you to join the Marines? Well, I was that uh, I was that kid in the neighborhood with my pals running around dressed in uh, Army surplus camouflage uniforms. We got at the Army surplus Army Navy down the street trying to uh, track down and uh, kill Nazis in the alley behind our houses. So uh, that's how I grew up doing that kind of stuff with my pals and uh, just just never really let it go. And uh, after high school, I just decided, you know, I was still interested in it. And uh, you know what? I should probably give it a shot. And that's what I did. I initially enlisted in the Marines in 1986. As an enlisted member, not not an officer? No, I retired as a major. I'm in the Marine Corps. They're called Mustang officers. We start uh, on the enlisted side and then somehow get commissioned and retire as as an officer. That's what I did. I spent about Three, well, oh wow, five years as a as an enlisted marine, as a sergeant in artillery at the end, and uh, was going through OCS and uh, accepted a commission, and then went back on active duty. Retired after 21 years as a major. Were you one of those kids who was digging fighting positions in the backyard then? <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> yes, I actually had a, a special forces a Green Beret on recently who. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, he was field stripping weapons, you know, at the age of five, and and digging fighting positions in the backyard. And so, so let's let's move forward. I I was fascinated by what you did and what you're doing now, and um, but like I said, I didn't know there was. Walk us through what an artifact and historical officer does in the Marine Corps. Sure, and just to answer your question, I wasn't aware of it either until I really started looking around when uh, the Twin Towers fell. But the role of an artifact officer and a combat historian. Uh, is to deploy to combat zones to accompany those assault units and record what they're doing for uh, the Marine Corps History Division. And you do that a few ways. The history officer, by the way, at the height of the global war on terrorism, there's only eight or nine of us. It's not a big outfit. We're called reservists. We go to the go to the combat zone and we record that in, in three or four ways. The first one being oral history. So we will go out, me, I was with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines and 3-1 patrol with them. We'd get into some action, and then later that night or the next day, I would sit down with those individual Marines, and I'd say, hey, Corporal Schmutz, tell me tell me what you did there. And slide a uh, tip quarter in front of them or a digital quarter in my notebook and just listen to him first person on what he was doing. I did this, I did this, we did this. Well, why don't you do that because of this? Well, what was going on around you because of this, because of this? I record that, I transcribe it, and then send it back to the history division. And what that becomes is the primary source for that particular battle to get the real view of it. Not an after-action report, not a lessons learned report, not a supply report, but actually the words of the guys and the girls that ran it. So 30, 40 years from now, somebody can say, 
Lance Corporal, tap, 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 and Ovalusia, tap, 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 and, say, and that will come up and they'll be able to hear Lance Corporal Schmott say, we stormed the building, we kicked in the door, uh, this and this and this happened. So it's the primary source. It's not a public affairs piece. It's not journalism. It's a recording primary material for future researchers. So that's the, that's the main mission. The second mission is to gather artifacts. So let's say the Corporal Schmatz was awarded a Medal of Honor or a Navy Cross. I would then say, wow, that's a big deal. So I would then track him back down uh, two or three days later if he's recommended for an award. And I'd say, what was the serial number on your rifle? What vehicle were you in? What gear did you have? What are the serial numbers? Uh, and talk to the supply officer. And I'd just record all that information as well. So that the history in the museum division could then later say when that stuff was decommissioned, they'd say, oh, rifle 67341. Oh, my God, Corporal Schmott had that in that particular engagement in Fallujah. They'd pull that into the museums and into the archives. So we've got oral histories. We've got artifacts. Uh, and then we have personal experiences, the journals and photographs. And in my case, I was there as a combat artist also taking photographs and making sketches, field sketches and artwork of what was going on. That's kind of the big mission. Did you have artistic talent? Before you went into the Marines, or did they teach you to draw? Because I just, I mean, I've seen so, you know, we're looking at literally pencil drawings, like charcoals and... and Exactly. Good call. Exactly. Those are charcoal on a crescent board, and I actually did those. What you see is when I was sitting there watching that going down. I was a kid in Catholic school. The nuns came up to me in fifth grade and said, Winslow, you need a crucifix for Mass. And so went home, cobbled it together in a garage with paper, and my dad and I were putting together mirrors and poles and all that stuff. I took it into church the next day and it just completely blew everybody away. And uh, I was just doing my thing. I thought it was interesting and creative, but that was kind of the start of it. Using my vision and kind of my design skills or artistic skills to do something that was interesting. So it went from there. I went to art school and studied fine arts and uh, set design and exhibits and costumes and everything all the way up until I joined the Marine Corps. 15 years later. So, yes, I did have that time before I joined the Marines. It just strikes me as, as very old-fashioned. I mean, when everybody's got a GoPro on their chest or their helmet and, and you know, digital cameras, drawings, are they're sort of refreshing in a way. Yes, they are. The Marine Corps has probably one of the most dynamic art programs there is. The Marine Corps, like most things the Marine Corps does, is we're just really a motley bunch of people of interesting, strange, exceptional, weird normal. I mean, just this huge group of very interesting people. And the Marine Corps has always found a way to identify, in particular, those individuals who have that skill set. So they, they, since the 1940s, in response to World War II, they've been plucking men and women out of the active force who are artists and have them do fine art. And so that literally the mission of the Marine Corps art program is to go to war and do art, end quote. That is it. And uh, that's what we do now. We still deploy guys, uh, fine artists across the globe and across the fleet, and they do fine art, fine art, sculpture, the whole shebang. Fascinating. I had no idea. The artifact part of things, do you get to decide or you just gather everything and somebody at the museum or somewhere else down the line decides this is a historic MRE spoon? Well, that's uh, that's it. We have some guiding principles, really. First of all, no cultural artifacts. That's not what we're there for. We're not doing it in Indiana Jones. We're going in and pulling a head out of the dirt in Babylonia and sending it back to the museum. That's not what we're doing. Ours is exclusively focused on Marine Corps battle-related artifacts, weapons, clothes, reports, vehicles, aircraft, all that that might have played some kind of historical role. We want to identify that, and then we want to get that back to the rear or back to the museum. 
all that does re- require screening. Some of it is uh, there's legal issues, and some of it is just there's so much of that stuff already. So everything goes back to the rear, and somebody makes a decision there for you. Namely, the Marine Corps Museum. The curators there actually said, we're looking for this weapon, this weapon, this and this and this. So we kind of had a little bit of a shopping list to try to find when we were over there. I, and I think I, I looked at Wikipedia, so it must be true, uh, Joe. But uh, I can't recall, I want to say like a dozen, maybe more Navy crosses. So it would be that kind of stuff you'd be looking for. Uh, we're looking for that uh, for sure. Uh, but we're also looking to record the role of the everyday infantrymen in combat what they were doing and the lieutenants, the captains and below, uh, what they're up to, why they're doing it, what they're feeling about what's in their heart, what's in their hands and uh, how they're taking the fight to the enemy. Would that also apply to to tactical changes? I mean, is this something they would study at the academy maybe? They may do that. They may do that. They may reference our work, but the Marine Corps has a separate organization. I think the Army does too, a lessons learned group that actually goes out and says, well, did you get enough ammo? Okay, well, we're going to re- compare that to this ammo shipment. That's that's not what we do. We just we're recording individual combat actions, unit okay. combat actions. Yeah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is your host Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Joe Winslow, uh, Major United States Marine Corps. You guys don't retire though. You never you never can escape the family. <laughs> he's he's a Marine. We'll be right back. We'll talk about the Second Battle of Fallujah, one of the bloodiest battles in the entire conflict. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Joe Winslow. He's a retired Marine, retired at the rank of major after 21 years in the Marine Corps. Joe, we're talking about your role as, as a historic officer. You were deployed, actually, in combat in the Second Battle of Fallujah, Operation Phantom Fury, which it was in November of 2004, and just crazy urban combat. Now, when I was talking to Stacy Pearsall, the Air Force combat photographer, she said that she stopped carrying her rifle. She just carried a sidearm. And then she made a very wrenching comment of, you know, if the time ever came where I needed a rifle, there'd be plenty of them laying around. Every Marine is a rifleman first. So when, at that time, Captain Winslow is in the streets of Fallujah, I assume you've got the full battle rattle and your rifle and you're still, you're still a Marine. Absolutely. That is uh, that was my role there for sure. It's fully armed and uh, ready to go and uh, looking to participate with the other Marines where I could without getting in the way. You bet. Uh, I showed up at, in Fallujah after 15 years of uh, non-combat service and having a best desert storm. I was on embassy duty at the time. And so I was ready to go and I was pleased to be there. And uh, there was no shortage of opportunities to engage with uh, the enemy while I was there. None. So you're you're doing your drawings when people are not shooting at you. Well, I've I've done it all under fire. I've done the interviews under fire, under rifle fire, sniper fire, rocket fire, and fire. I've done that the whole time. We've ended up on the floor on our stomachs. I've uh, 
been sketching under rocket fire, sketching under rifle and sniper fire, and composing reports and interviewing guys. So we literally had uh, 71 straight days of incoming fire or engaging the enemy. We were just carrying on as usual. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, no disrespect, Joe, but can't that wait until you're not getting sh- shot at or there was just, there was no, there was that, no, weren't that many lulls and, and you wanted to get it right then while it was fresh in their minds? We got to get it quick. You got to get either that evening or the next day to get it right. Now, if we were completely assaulting a position or there was heavily engaged, I'm not going to be doing any of that at the time. But if we're I've just finished or we're on the way to somewhere and we're engaged or having to engage or something like that, I'll just stop and do some sketches or talk to some Marines and just keep rolling. I mean, I got a job to do. So um, uh, that just happens to be where I'm doing it. If you don't mind, just because obviously we believe in the power of storytelling as well, and I've had a number of people on the show who were involved in Operation Phantom Fury. And I mean, we, we get urban combat, but I mean, the way I've heard that city, the city described as a concrete and steel city. Okay, so uh, you're exactly right. Um, brutal, brutal, brutal. And let me tell you why. I describe it as really these Marines that I was with were really construction workers in a combat zone. Why do I say that? Because the city was almost entirely concrete, except for the oldest center part of the city, which still had some wood and some steel buildings. But the rest of it was from the 70s and 80s, and now were just pure cast concrete. But the Marines had to go through, and they had to clear every single one of those buildings. And I think if my numbers are right on that, um, I think there were like 32,000 individual rooms. Because I think I tallied that up at one point. And those Marines had to go through every building, through every room, and many times, three times over, reconnoitering, clearing, and then... Uh, Reclearing or rechecking. So they had to go through all those under fire, rocket fire, uh, mortar fire, the whole thing, during every single one of those. And most times they were almost destroyed or completely destroyed prior to or during. So you're just completely involved in urban combat upstairs, downstairs, walking upstairs, going downstairs, getting on the roof, going down the stairs, breaking in the door. It's just an unending physical requirement while somebody else is trying to kill you. So from just a basic logistical standpoint, that's what you're talking about. Physical stamina in the extreme. Bravery in the extreme. Suppression of fear in the extreme. You know, it's just moving around a lot of stuff all the time under fire. It's just, it was absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. But absolutely eye-opening as well. Joe, the if I recall my history correctly, by the time that we moved in, uh, most of the civilians knew trouble was coming and had cleared out. But I'd also, I mean, there's what, maybe, I guess, about 30, 32,000 civilians still in, in the city. But all the bad guys, I mean, it was like a top 100 of all the bad guys in, in that region all flooded into Fallujah and were not fighting amongst themselves, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, they all, they had a common enemy, and they were just letting the Marines and, and the Army have it. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, I just, I was on a... Speaking to her, and I got back for a couple of years, I described there are um, there are kind of like three three tiers of enemy fighters in the city. The first the first ones were uh, the opportunists. Uh, the second ones were the believers, and the third ones were the first round draft picks. And here's here's why I mention this because the violence actually escalated. It started off low in November. And by December 24th, when it was officially determined that it was over, the violence on each engagement and the amount of kills and those being killed ramped up exponentially through December 24th. And here's why. is because 
Zarkari put out the call to everybody and he said, hey, this is it. Come get some. This is the fight right here with the Americans. You want to come? So he got three guns of people. He got the opportunists who are uh, uh, young people or young men, and they'd say, hey, I can, we can make 50 bucks. I'll, take, I'll shoot an RPG for 50 bucks. I got a print on the table. Those guys wiped out, surrendered or wiped out in the first few days. Um, the believers were ones who were coming from around the country and around the Middle East, and they were ones who were like, I believe the Americans are wrong. I'm getting them out. I don't care who they are. I'm going to do it. They were in the middle. So chronologically, they were three or four weeks towards the end or into the battle. They were fighting. They were covering. They were concealed. They knew how to use their weapons. Uh, they were in it. Uh, uh, they were willing to fight and die for it. But the third, those guys all got wiped out or surrendered. But then the third group, the first round draft picks, these are hardened terrorists. They're hardened insurgents. They are fully trained and they're going to die or make you die for it. And they don't care how it goes down. So they were left over through all the way through the fight uh, up until the last days and just turned all the engagements, even with that, more deadly because we had to bring in more stuff, more, more firepower, more Marines, more breaching to get them out. So that's kind of the, escalation of violence over the the course of the battle. Was mechanized available, or were some of the streets too narrow, or the alleys or just wherever you were fighting? Well, you had a combination of that. You know, it's a north-south kind of city, east-west kind of city. The center of it was very dense and very narrow, so that required, you know, the Jolon district, that required foot on foot uh, in the alleys, in the hallways, going through the buildings. Then as you radiated out, radiated out from the Joland next to the river, uh, you could get your tanks and your Humvees and your Amtraks in there. And then uh, as you went even more south, like to Queens and out towards Camp Fallujah, it was just wide open territory. You could get any, any kind of tank or any kind of vehicle out there. So that's kind of how that worked. It really depended where you were at. I think I saw a picture of a M1 Abrams, soft, uh, quote unquote, softening up a target. And I mean, the, the, the tip of their main gun couldn't have been... I don't know, maybe 200 feet from the target. It was, it was, uh, yeah, very, very messy. Joe, we come back. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the Second Battle of Fallujah and what you witnessed there, and then I want to chat a little bit about what you did after you got out of the Marines, ladies and gentlemen. Your host, Ben Bueller Garcia, talking with Major Joe Winslow. We'll be right back. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, here on American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Joe Winslow. Joe served 21 years in the Marines. I think, Joe, about four as a historical officer with the Marine Corps History Division. Yes, exactly, four years. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the, the Second Battle of Fallujah, one of the bloodiest battles of the entire conflict. And as I mentioned before, we've had a number of people who experienced and lived through that, including one Medal of Honor winner. As you're talking to these, because we've got to be... I mean, what, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds? And, and you're a Mustang, so you're a little bit longer in the tooth uh, yeah. than some of the Marines you're working with. What kind of feedback were you getting, or what were you witnessing amongst these young men? 
absolutely awed. I couldn't believe what I was hearing from these guys. And it filled me with so much hope, man, filled me with filled me with a whole lot all at once. It filled me with a lot of hope for our country. It really did. It also filled me with a lot of strong feelings for these young men who were doing things that uh, they were going to remember for a very long time. And some of them were going to be grievously injured or killed. And they were doing it anyway. And so what was going through my mind? I'll tell you, a lot. A lot was going through my mind. I had to sit there. I, over the course of uh, six months, I did a little over 300 interviews in combat with 300 individual combat Marines. And I heard it all. I mean, I heard it all. I heard it all from the most patriotic, uh, uh, gung-ho American fighting Marine that you would see in a movie with a crew cut and, uh, you know, the body of a weightlifter to the average young man coming out of high school and not sure what he wanted to do. He thought the Marines would be great. He's heard about things. He's just trying to live up to the standard he thinks is so high. So I heard it all. Heard it all. I did not know if I was going to get uh, laughter, bravado, or tears. And I'll tell you, I got all three of those all the time. So it's very, very eye-opening for me. Very eye-opening. I listened to one of your interviews, Joe, and, and you said, alluded something to a fact that was, was interesting that You'd be sitting there interviewing a Marine who'd done something pretty amazing and heroic, but they're all deflecting. They're all giving credit to that Marine next to them or behind them. Yes. And that's something as a civilian I'm, I'm continually impressed with, is just the amount of humility that we get from some of these heroes. Um, a ton of that. And uh, I found that from privates up to colonels, and uh, I think that's, uh, that's uh, that was just amazing to me as well. It's something the Marine Corps is... Um, is all about not taking personal talent, not taking personal responsibility. It's about the team. It's about taking care of the guys on the left and the right and up and down. It's, it's pretty amazing. For how many of these Marines was this their first real taste of, of combat? I will tell you that exactly because I have the exact numbers because I pulled all the unit rosters on this after the battle to research who these guys were statistically. I'll tell you exactly who they were right now. They were all just about 70% of all the fighting men were Lance Corporals or below. That's an E3. They have only been in the Marine Corps about two and a half years, and the majority of them had not even been in the regiment for over a year and a half. So what does that mean? That means that we have that group of young men, enormously lethal, enormously capable young men who left high school and within two and a half years were taken out some of the most fanatical insurgents that the world had to offer at the time one of the most dangerous cities that the world had to offer at the time as well, that America still built these young men and these young women. We, we still build them. They are still out there. They still raise their hand. They're still very new. These are a bunch of gristled uh, gunnies and corporals and sergeants from some movie. These are young men and young women, predominantly men, who are coming in from the cities and the countryside who are raising their hand, getting trained, and uh, knocking it out in battle in very short order. So that that's the answer to that. Just amazing. It completely changed my perspective that America is actually not a group of fat, unaffected, game-playing, uh, moronic teenagers. We still grow them, and we can still put them in the field like we did in World War II and Korea and Vietnam as young people who can defend America's interests and take that bayonet forward. We still do it. We still do it to this day. Show when I hear you say that, it makes me wonder if maybe that's the only reason why the, the Marines seems to be the only branch that are making the recruitment quotas. You know, young people want hard stuff, and the Marine Corps will give it to you. The Marine Corps is a difficult, difficult, difficult mistress, and uh, I'll tell you, 
if you want to prove yourself, you want to see if you can do it, come give us a shot. We'll give you a chance. And I think young people respond to that, men and women. They want to, they want something to know. They want to know they can do something and they can make something work. That's the American way. That's why we're so good. Joe, you interviewed, you said, I think you said 300 interviews, and I mentioned the, the number of you know, awards for heroism during that battle. Do you know if any of the people you talked to eventually went on to, to receive those awards, and are there any particular stories that really stood out in your mind? I know quite a few of them. You need, you need to talk about Adelsberger, who's a 3-5 under Captain Drew McNulty. Uh, you can talk about Chad Cassidy, who was a corporal, who was a squad leader, cradling his weapon between his knees as he was fired with his left hand because his right two fingers were falling off his right hand, but he was covering the retreat of a squad out of a building. Adelsberger, uh, covering fire, taking guys down. Uh, God, there's so many of them. I'd have to actually look at my list. But I was just shocked and amazed and humbled by the selfless actions that I was that I was a party to there that I witnessed and was able to record. Just just amazing. Well, let's talk about one guy we, we both know pretty good right now. Let's talk about Joe Winslow. There's a scene in Band of Brothers where the lieutenant is talking to a private and who is, you know, having trouble getting on his foxhole and he he tells him, he says, Son, you know, the sooner you recognize that we're all already dead, only then will you be able to fight the way you're trained and supposed to fight as as a yes. fighting man. And yes. you had one of those moments yourself. I did. <laughs> that was like come to Jesus uh, moment and uh, by come to Jesus I mean literally come to Jesus. <laughs> That woke back up the Catholic boy in me. Uh, we were under rocket fire and rifle fire, and uh, I'd been in the city for a few weeks with 3-5 and 3-1, and quite frankly, I was like, I was, am I going to make it out of this alive? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There's impacts on the building. There's rockets flying overhead. There's the whole thing. And for some reason, I looked, I looked up, and I looked around the room, and I thought, look at all these guys in here. These guys are Marines. I know where they're coming from. I know what they can do. And this sense of serenity came over me, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to rely on what the Marine Corps has given me and what the Lord's giving me and my skills and my talents, my beliefs, and I'm just going to let it ride. I'm just going to let it ride. I'm just going to get up. I'm going to do the best I can. We're going to go out there, and we're going to get it done. I'm just going to keep pushing. And this sense of serenity came over me at that point that was just that still serves me to this day when I have a challenge or a, or a problem that's, that I think is pretty serious. I just um, listen to that voice, and uh, uh, it works every single time. But I would say if you haven't found, I'm not preaching, I'm saying if you haven't found that inner peace of that serenity or your religion, I tell people, like my cousins, they'll say, you don't need to go to church. And I'll say, well, you better keep it in your back pocket because you're probably going to need it at some point as I did, and it came in super handy for me, but I certainly did have that moment. There's nothing you can do. It's out of your hands. So, And were you there till the end, Joe, or, or did you get pulled out early? Oh, I was there from start to finish. Right there, and I was there from the workup to the whole thing through the finish out and left in March of the next year and then spent uh, two years, uh, two or three years here, uh, just gathering more data, recording and writing about it and uh, keeping in touch with the Marines who were in it. So it was a, it, it started off and it formed the basis for a lot of my work for many years afterwards. For sure. About a minute before we have to take a break, and then Joe, I want to come back and talk about your your time after the service. So often we talk to veterans and they they have a struggle. They they feel like they've lost their sense of mission. And in in your case, it strikes me though that this was the perfect transition for you. 
given your, your history and your skill sets and your experiences. And I love the fact I, I read a quote here that you said that you believe that Marines are uniquely suited to small business ownership. So when we come back, I'd like you to explain a little bit about that and, and tell us what you were thinking starting a business you know, months before the financial crisis. I guess that might be might be one of those signs you drew on that inner piece, right? <laughs> and I'll share it with you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Joe Winslow. Check out Joe Winslow one the one.com And don't forget, you can visit AmericanWarriorRadio.com. We've got over 500 archived podcasts there, including this one, that you'll have a chance to uh, to download. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Joe Winslow. Joe spent uh, 21 years in the United States Marine Corps, retired as a major. And check out JoeWinslow1.com. That's going to be pertinent to what we're talking about next. Joe, you, like a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of people come out of the military and they're looking for something to, to fulfill that second mission and give them something to feel like they're still contributing. They're still part of the team. They're still, you know, they still have a tribe. And in your case, you were looking for a way in your civilian life to honor those who served, and you put your artistic talents to work doing that. Yes, I was. Um, you'd said that I had a perfect transition, and that's certainly not the case. It was really uh, just a hard-fought victory I've ended up with now for the last three years or so. Uh, it was fraught with some victories and plenty of defeats. So where would you like me to start on that? Well, let's let's start about what, what inspired you to go into that line of work, to, to continue your artwork and to honor... Um, because I tell you, I, I visited your website. One of the things that really I like that jumped out of me is you actually have people can buy gifts, I think, still, yeah. for, uh, medals yes. for their family. And these are yes. good-looking medals, right? Oh, thank you. Yeah, they are. Thank you very much. Yeah, our spouse medal. We designed that uh, last year because spouses are a big part of it. Without them, uh, most of it doesn't work. So uh, why are we honoring them, too? Why don't we pin something on their chest, right? Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, here's the deal. I retired at... 20, you know, 21 years or so, I was uh, 39. I was 39. Not old. Not old at all. But I felt like, wow, you know, I uh, I spent 21 in the, in the Marines. I just wanted to go to combat. That's all I ever wanted to do. I wanted some cool uniforms. I wanted to beat the Marines. I wanted to see some stuff blow up. And I got all that done. And there it was all of a sudden. Now what? You know, that's the whole focus since fifth grade. I started thinking, well, what do I enjoy doing? One, Oh, well, I, I know I'm artistic. I enjoy that quite a bit. I mean, am I any good at it at that point? I'm not sure. Do I like being a Marine and what that entails to focus on the mission, the planning it out, the writing the order, the working with the Marines, the leading people, being led, the whole thing? I like that. So I thought, how do I combine all that? And I thought, well, I think the only way I can really do that, since I'm such a, a, a strange combination of uh, a creative type and a Marine officer, so... Uh, you know, I need to find some way to do it. So the first the first iteration of that was a gift company designing things for the military and trying to find producers or producing it on my own that would work well. So how do I combine them? An interest and a background. Now, 
I'm not sure that would work had I not been in the Marines because the Marines gave me some very basics for small business. And one is plan it out. And I say, write the five paragraph order. It's just that simple. Every private and above learns the five paragraph order. Where are we going? How are we doing it? Who needs to know about it? And what are we going to do when we get done? You know, essentially. So I thought that was a very powerful tool. So I just took that and uh, started working that best I could. An example there is, is that what am I trying to do? Here's a mission statement. How long is it going to take? I'm going to be a gift company. I'm going to design this. I'm going to talk to these people. Well, who do I need to know? Communications. Well, I need to talk to the press about it. I need to let customers know about it. How am I going to do that? Break it down. So I just thought that Marines who are very methodical and drive very hard on uh, how to plan things out would be a good thing for small business. So I just tried to combine those things and started doing that the, the, really the day I retired back in 2008. I've been working it ever since. Uh, why? Well, I, I would. I suspect discipline comes into that factors yeah. in there too. Yes, it is for sure. Uh, we're very mission focused, and by God, do we feel guilty if we don't get it done? And I think that's a that's a pretty good combo for a business person because uh, you've got to. Plus, you've got to treat people right. And while Marines can often be brutal and violent, uh, the, they're as much as uh, that they are. They are also conscientious and uh, want to do the right thing by people. So. That also resonated well with clients. And early on in my career, I simply got jobs because people knew I was going to work it very hard and that I would listen to them and they would know that I'm going to get it done somehow. Now, the first few years, I'll admit, some of those were pretty crappy. But, you know, I have people who said, Winslow's a nice guy. Winslow kind of knows what he's doing. And he's a very honest person. He's, he's going to work his ass off. Oh, excuse me. He's going to work his rear end off on getting this done. And I think most Marines bring that to the table. Most Marines, not an percent of Marines, bring that to the table. That's all business people want. Somebody they can trust. Somebody's got work work hard for them and get and get something to the table. And so I think that's why Marines are well, well suited for it. Well, very well suited for it. I read in an uh, interview you did where you were talking about. I think it was you. You know, you've been operating your business about nine months when the the real financial storms came on the horizon in two thousand eight, and you're laying there in bed awake. Uh, you're not quite sure how you're going to get through this, but it's almost like you then went back to that building in Fallujah under rocket fire and you found that place of serenity. I did not immediately find that place of serenity. <laughs> it was ironic. It was the perfect storm at the time. I invested a ton of money and equipment. I had uh, rented space and at the exact same time, I was getting my first big contracts. So I was getting my first big government contracts in, but here was the problem. To produce those, um, you needed more capital to produce them. And where were you getting more capital? Nowhere in 2008, 2009 for a new untested business with no real revenue to show on a balance sheet or any statements, you're not going to get it. So as I laid in bed at night and my wife was sound asleep and I laid in bed at night worrying how I was going to pay the mortgage, which is something you do not ever want to be in the position to be doing, thought to myself, I'm just going to make it work. I'm just going to get up and I'm going to make it work. I'm going to keep marching. I'm I don't care about the incoming. I don't care about all that. I'm going to find a way to make it work. And so I went out and I just started telling people about what my problem was and what I was trying to do. And lo and behold, it worked. This is why character and your reputation is so important. I went to one of my vendors and I said, can you help me with this? And he goes, you know what, Joe? He goes, I'm going to do this project for you. It's probably a $30,000 project. He goes, I'm going to do this for you and you just pay me when you can. I said, I don't know what I can pay you. Don't worry about it. Here you go. Don't worry about it. I was talking to another friend of mine. He had a ton of other problems. And he goes, here's a check. I said, I can't, I can't pay this back in time soon. He goes, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But then that, that wasn't the only savior. But the main thing was the keep marching part. 
I just decided I was going to find a way to do it. So I just kept reading, kept talking to people. I found ways to do it. I found ways to get these jobs financed and get them through the door. And the combination of vendor financing and friends and family and my IRA and all that just uh, kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And today it's going great. So you just got to keep pushing and have faith. And, and folks can learn more if they visit your website, joewinslow1.com. But kind of real quickly, I just about three minutes left, Joe. Describe what it is that you do and, and what percentage of your business is the the individual gift type orders versus a, a, a contract to build something for the National Cathedral? It's about half and half, to be honest with you. Um, our mission now is we just memorialize great people who've done great things. And uh, whether that's military people, that's military organizations, or if it's organizations like churches and uh, the government or the White House or an agency, we do that. But really what we're talking about is communicating great things that great people have done. And we try to do that for them through a combination of uh, design and technology and put something on the wall and put something in the building and put something outside that reflects these great things people have done, serving our country, serving other people, making somebody's lives better, all the above. All the above. And is this something that I could commission you to do almost anything? I mean, if I had a photo of something and I wanted it in bronze, could you do that for me? All day long. All day long. That's exactly what we do. Most of my clients have a, have a napkin and they say, I'm looking for this. And it's a sketch on a napkin. And I say, okay, I like it. I like it. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about venues. Let's talk about pricing options. And then we, and from there, we go forward with some formalized design. But uh, we always just always start with some resembling a napkin in a sketch. And uh, we take it from there based on your time and your budget. This is an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because you're a Marine and you're tough. It's kind of like asking a you know, parent who their favorite child is. Is there one piece <laughs> of art that or work that you've done that just really you say that that was – that's me. That's me in bronze or clay or whatever. Well, I've got two answers for you in that. Uh, the first answer is, is uh, I just, I've started a series of bronze uh, freezes with your plates of the Battle of Fallujah. That's the first one. So that's a 20 by 40 bronze that was commissioned by the Marine Corps Museum about a year and a half ago. We just cast that and just started uh, getting that into the collection. So uh, that's on Joe Winslow 1. And the other thing is, I was asked to be, uh, talk about me in bronze. I was asked to be uh, a Sabin Howard, the sculptor for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., asked me to pose as a character in the uh, life-size World War I Memorial. So I'm in there. I'm the chaplain, and I'm helping a uh, dead or dying uh, soldier off the, uh, off the ground as we're trying to get him to the station uh, in the battle. So. I'm in that life-size, and that's pretty amazing. I tell you what, Joe, for my generation, that's even cooler than being in a video game. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I think it is. Then a lot of work with video games, too. Joe, we really appreciate you spending time with our audience today. Again, folks, visit Joe Winslow 1, the numeral 1.com, to check out his work. If you are working on a project or your church or your community needs some help, uh, definitely reach out to Joe. I think he can take care of you. Thanks so much again, folks. Visit JoeWinslow1.com. This has been your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. I want to leave you with one other quote I stole off of Joe's website. He says, have faith in yourself and those around you. That will get you through anything. Great words from a Marine. Don't forget to visit AmericanWarriorRadio.com. If you support what we do, visit Patreon.com forward slash AmericanWarriorRadio, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash AmericanWarriorRadio, and you can help us with our expansion. Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.